stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard a tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that I'm leaving and I'm never I've heard a thousand stories. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never. Oh. 
Father's Day. So glad that you are here to worship the Lord, to have fellowship with one another. We are worshiping God who is eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And by his Son, he has made a way of salvation for us so that we might be a part of that community that he has in himself. And so you're invited to be a part of that community today. And he extends that invitation through his creation and what he's made, the beautiful world that he's made, and the way that he has made salvation for us to be a part of his kingdom as well. So we praise him this morning. Though we are broken, he has taken our brokenness and made something beautiful. Let's continue to worship him this morning. You may. 
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we're here together to worship and praise you. We thank you for all you've done in our lives, protecting us and always showing us love. May every person in this church family encounter your greatness. May you fill our hearts with unspeakable joy that only comes from you. Today we celebrate all fathers and father figures in our lives and as well in our memories. Help them mature in faith so that they may encourage those around them to trust and come to know you more richly. Father, today I ask that by the truth and the power of your inspired word, that you renew our minds and we live according to your will. As we continue in service, let your presence overshadow us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So for fourth through sixth graders, please go ahead and make your way to your fun classes. Go have fun and, um, and enjoy. So at this time, you want to take time to say hello to your neighbor. And if there's a father who's next to you, go ahead and wish him a happy Father's Day. So take time to say hello to your neighbors. So welcome, Redemption Acadia. My name is Kanu Jacobson, and I am a part of this wonderful church family. Um, I'm also, I also belong to the RC group that is led by Dave and Cindy, and Ben is always there, so that's always fun. <laughs> so if you're new here, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. So we hope that you can connect with Andrea, who's always at the Connect desk right outside the sanctuary. She's amazing, and she will answer any questions that you may have. So as a local expression of the family of God, we are seeking to embody the gospel in all of life in the Acadia area. We are one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona, and we are gospel-centered, outward-focused, and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So on behalf of the church leaders and the staff, we wanted to perform a Father's Day reading to all the fathers in the church family. But before I do that, I do have a prop here. There's a little treat for all the fathers. <laughs> Not sure if you saw it as you came in, but if you're a father, go ahead and uh, take a treat and enjoy. So the reading is called today, God our Father, we ask your blessing on all fathers. So for new fathers, coming to terms with this new responsibility. For those who are trying to balance the demands of work, marriage, and children. 
for those who, ha who have to struggle to be a part of their child's life, for those who are unable to feed their children due to poverty, for those whose children have physical, mental, or emotional disabilities, and for those whose children have been placed for adoption, for those whose love and support has offered healing, and for those that have adopted a child into their family, for those who lost a child, and for those who care for the children of others, and for those whose children have left home. Bless all fathers that they may be able to commit themselves selflessly as mentors, protectors, providers, and shaping the direction of their children's character by giving love, care, and guidance. Bless all fathers that they may lead their children to know and do what is good, living not only for themselves alone, but for God and for others. Amen. So please stand for the reading of the word. Morning. The reading for today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Nick. So yes, that was uh, a long reading, 
but actually uh, we're also going to cover a little bit after that as well. We're going to go all through four, even though we just read through uh, one through 14, but I do think it gave us kind of the uh, picture of what we're going through today. Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, today is my first non-fetus Father's Day. Yes. Woo! Yes, to some of you, because I've made you mac and cheese, you call me the mac daddy. But, but in my house, we refer to me as big daddy. <laughs> and uh, I actually got, I just want to share this. This has no relevance to the sermon, but I want to share this. Uh, for Father's Day, I got a bowl because we don't have bowls that are big enough to eat out of. They're like tiny. My wife likes, she eats like a bird. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I got to support this dad bod somehow. So she got me a big bowl, and it says Big Daddy's Big Bowl. It's great. It's got, like, it's got my daughter Presley's hands and feet prints on it. It's wonderful. Yeah, if you ever over at my house, I'll show it to you. It's one of my <laughs> favorite things now. Uh, well, I'm going to pray before we get in, but before we get in, I kind of want to give a little bit of uh, expectations for today. So today, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this old school preaching style. It's called SOAP. You go through scripture, observation, application, and uh, prayer. Well, similar to today, but I'm going to mix scripture and observations together. We're going to go through applications and we're going to pray together. So we're going to start by walking through the scripture, through the whole bit of uh, Nehemiah 4. I'm going to intro it a little bit, and then we're going to um, end with some application stuff that I think is really helpful for what we get from Nehemiah 4. Uh, let me pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I confess as a messenger that... Any things that originate from me are insignificant. So, Lord, I pray that me and myself, that I would be forgettable. And I pray that you, Lord, in your word would be uh, what lasts in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate minds and I pray that you would ignite hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in Nehemiah. If you've been here before, you know that we've been in Nehemiah. Uh, we've taken the last two weeks to go through one through three. Those chapters, we're taking a break from John 12. We were in John 12, we're taking a break from John. But this story of Nehemiah is one story among the whole story of Scripture. We like to say that Scripture is about, you know, different people through different parts of it. But the whole bit of this Bible is about God and his work and him using people. But it's the same story. And so as we go through this one little story among the whole story, I want to recognize that the people in this story, the Jews coming back from Persia, they know their story. They know the history of their people, and they know the future from the prophecies that have been given. But there's some murkiness in the midst of it, and they're trying. They're also coming into expectations that this is when God is going to set up his new kingdom, when they're coming into Jerusalem. And they're a little bit, when they find opposition, they're a little bit discouraged. Let's take some notice. This is real stuff that happens, so I want to take some notice of some things. This trip wouldn't have been a day's drive or even a two days drive. It's thought that from the way they traveled and with how many kids and families that were a part of this company, it would have been like a four month travel. So for four months, you're traveling with all your stuff and then camping and then traveling and camping. And I would imagine when they break for camp that they're getting around the fire and they're sitting there talking about how excited they are to go from captivity into the promised land, just like in the Exodus, when God's people were taken from the captivity, captivity of Egypt and came into the promised land with God, fighting their battles. They're 
I'm sure they're giving these pump-up sermons, you know, Nehemiah's like gather around. And here's one of the verses I'm sure would have been resonated because what's happening here is not that they're just going to rebuild a wall. What's happening here is they're rebuilding their identity. This is their identity and something that they would have known. Uh, Deuteronomy 7. For you are, God, are, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Their identity was not in their number or in their power or in how many horses they had. Their identity, their identity was in who loved them, who said he chose them and has his treasured possession, so who they belong to. I would imagine that these camp. I wish I could have been around some of those campfires to hear some of the stuff they were talking about, it's connecting scripture with this encouragement intensity of going into the promised land. Uh, but this brings us to what Nehemiah is about, and it's about God's people returning to him and being his holy people, his treasured possession. It's much more than a wall. The wall signifies being distinct God's people, not just people. It was distinctive. It was much more symbolic than just the fence. I have a few treasured possessions in my life. It's Father's Day, so I'll start with Presley. It's my daughter. She's 10 months old. Uh, people ask me when I became a dad, just like they asked me when I got married. Well, how's it like? What do you think? You know, give me the lowdown. And when people ask me about what it's like to be a dad, I say, I love being a dad. I really love being Presley's dad. There's a connection, an intimate connection I have relationally with my daughter that makes it much sweeter. She's mine. She is my treasured possession. I think the same about my wife. Hannah is my treasured possession as well. I, I love being a husband, but I really love being Hannah's husband. I'm the only one who gets to do that. But to be God's chosen people, his treasured possession in the Old Testament, you had to have the right lineage, and you had to live in the right land. The two things that set you apart were your people. So you had to be a Jew. I am not, by the way. Full Gentile. Uh, you had to be a Jew, but you also had to live in God's promised land. So... There's an interesting thing at play in that they're coming back to this identity that they have in God that's symbolized in the wall and so much more. In Nehemiah 1, we kind of learn that uh, Nehemiah is a Jewish cupbearer to a Persian king, King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes is the stepson to Esther. So we kind of see that there's this this one story, and it's all being weaved together. And this is where Nehemiah fits in. He's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. We also learn that he learns about the walls and that their destruction and the symbol of that God's people are not God's distinctive identity anymore. So he prays for months for God to make a way, and then God provides. Nehemiah arrives at the wall, and he quietly checks it out. He kicks the tires of the, you know, the gate, and he's looking at it, and He's trying to develop this plan of how they're going to rebuild these things. And then in chapter 3, 
we get kind of like a weird, it's weird that this would happen in a story, but the Hebrew uh, literatures weren't just chronological. They would have a narrative, and most everything is told in a story, but they would take a pause because what is being communicated is more important than just the chronological order. And so he takes a pause, and in chapter 3, he kind of changes the camera shot, and it gives a view of what's to happen. Like, this guy's going to build this, this guy's going to build this, this guy's a perfumer, and he's going to be a builder. So people are coming together from all walks of life to do the same job of God's mission. We also get back to this narrative in chapter 4. So we took a break, and now the camera focuses in on the story again. And somebody who was uh, introduced was Sanballat and his gang in chapter 2. His, the, this gaggle of gang members. And Sanballat, we know, is a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hate each other. Everybody who lived, not even just the Samaritans, but everybody who lived in Palestine hated the Jews. So as they're coming back to make themselves distinct again, they're hating them. And that's where the story picks up. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, will be Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that, there, that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So this guy starts, is introduced by saying, hey, you're, you're committing treason, aren't you? You're just coming in to build up your city so you can be the king and that you can secede from Persia. And then Nehemiah responds not with, no, here's my paper, like Frank said, here's my papers, like let me just lay out for you what I'm actually doing. No, he responds to him, God's with me. So Sanballat, and his gang are kind of against these Jews. And then they start cracking jokes. Verse 2, And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, Yes, what, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he's just going to break down their wall. Good burn, man. You got him. I don't know whether to insert like a laugh track or like crickets. I feel like this is one of those like, oh, man, what a great burn. It's, it doesn't seem like he, he really got them good here, but it seems like they're kind of trying to just tear down the Jews. So they're cracking jokes. What does Nehemiah do? Well, he, he returns and he retaliates. No, he prays. And what does he pray? Verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. The camera angle changes again from these jokes getting cracked to Nehemiah praying. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger and in the presence of the builders. That seems like a harsh prayer. That seems like a really harsh prayer. Uh, as this prayer happens, it's interesting to Nehemiah is praying scripture. 
See, as I said before, they would have been talking around the campfire and, you know, this and that. Well, the very time that they had seen God's wrath, where he was comfortable with this type of oppression, seeing God's wrath firsthand with his people, was in the story of Jeremiah. When the Babylonians came in and took over and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, and took all these Jews. And so he quotes from Jeremiah, and this is what he says. He's, he's saying this when he prays this prayer. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. For, forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. It seems like there's this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like they're remembering back to the old Mosaic covenant that they live under. See, Jesus hasn't come yet. They're not under the covenant of, of Jesus. They're under the covenant of Moses. And this rule was eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Oh, you know what? Turn their taunt back on themselves. And he's seen this done firsthand to his people. So he's comfortable asking for God's wrath to be shown. See, Nehemiah understands who God is. God is a God of grace and a God of wrath. He's not a God of grace sometimes and a God of wrath sometimes. God is always the God who is gracious and he is always a God who is just and will bring wrath. Always. You reap what you sow and it seems like these people are sowing that back on their own head and that's what he prays for. What's interesting here, too, is Nehemiah isn't just praying scripture over these people, over them, these bad guys. He's not just asking these people, you know. It's not like I'm saying, when you hate somebody, just pray what Nehemiah prayed over them. That's not what this is for right here. When you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you scoot up next to them, hey, praying for you, that's not what this is about here. We're not trying to prescribe that, but rather we live under the new covenant with Jesus. Jesus quotes the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth passage in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Best sermon ever given. He closes the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, a little bit after uh, Matthew 5. And as he's wrapping that up, he says, instead of eye for an eye, I know you've heard it that way, but instead turn the cheek when someone hits you. Instead, go the extra mile. That's kind of Jesus' mentality when you're sinned against. Something else he says, which I love, he closes it up with this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, when people sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is, this is huge. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wait, are you telling me that you actually require something of me when I'm under the covenant of Jesus? Yeah. Scripture right here is saying that we are commanded to forgive if we want forgiveness. So we don't get to just carry around that bitterness. But here's the other thing that Nehemiah is doing when he prays this prayer. He is confessing that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He's not trying to go and make retaliation on his own. He's not trying to fix things and, and come up with his strategy of how justice should happen. Our sense of justice as we're broken and perfect people will never be as clean or as clear as God's. And God's vengeance always Never, maybe I should kill the always, our vengeance always has collateral damage. God's vengeance never has collateral damage. So as we, if we genuinely want justice to be done and not retaliation, we must leave vengeance in the hands of God. And that's what he's doing here. He doesn't mount up an army and say, let's get them. Let's get them, boys. No, he prays and he gives it to the Lord. And 
as we're called to forgive, and as Jesus commands us to, we also need to remember that vengeance doesn't belong to us. It's not our property. But one of the greatest things about living in the covenant of Jesus, this side, is that we don't have to live under retaliation. I understand it seems like it would be easier, and it probably is easier to just get people back. It's a lot harder to forgive, genuinely forgive, and sometimes we have to forgive day after day after day, multiple times a day. But that's what we're called to. Kind of fleshing this out a bit. There's a, a recognition. If we ever get called, if we have our mission of what we're supposed to do, and the moment that we stop that, so that we can seek our vengeance. We're distracted from the mission. And Nehemiah knew this. He would not allow his sinful desire to, to get these people back. To keep him from being distracted from the work he had before him. So instead of retaliating, they worked. It says this back in uh, Nehemiah. We're going to move forward. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. They don't retaliate. I know what my mission is. Lord, I pray you'd take care of this. Boom, back to business. So we stay on course. Let's read on. Verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion here. What's, can we pull up that map? What's crazy is that it describes each person around. I like this map because in the time of Ezra and in the time of uh, Nehemiah, uh, they would have taken the same route in. So we kind of get to see the route. They would have stopped in Samaria, which, which, which would have been the place where they... Rule. They would have given the papers from Persia. Hey, this is what we're doing. We're not operating outside of the king's uh, commands. And then they would go down to Judah, which is their countryside, and in Jerusalem, the city. Well, if you notice, I don't know if you can see this, but Samaria is just above them. We have the Ammonites to their right, to their uh, east. We have the Ashdodites to the west. We've got the Arabs to the south. They are surrounded by their enemies. In the face of opposition, where they're surrounded by their enemies, plotting to kill them, what do they do? They pray. Novel idea. So they pray. But here's what's cool. It goes on to say this in verse um, 9. And we prayed. Nehemiah has been praying by himself over and over, but he leads God's people to pray corporately over the same thing. Guys, it matters when we pray together for one thing. It matters that we pray as a corporate community and not just individual people, but we gather together. So they prayed together. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So they didn't just pray. They didn't just set a guard. They acknowledged God in prayer and they acted. They didn't just pray. They prayed and they acted. As this comes on, I would be like, man, Lord, please do this. And I wouldn't just wait for God. Like, he, he's, there's a waiting on the Lord and acknowledging the Lord, but they don't, they don't let that keep them from also jumping in and getting their hands dirty. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. 
So these are the people in the community. These are Jews. The strength of the people, it's failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So there's opposition outside the community, and now there's opposition inside the community. We're not going to be able to do it. Then they say, uh, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews uh, in the community who lived near them, they're living in the countryside, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So the people who probably had great intentions um, in the community, wanting to love and care for their Jewish brothers and sisters who are working on the wall. Guys, it's not safe. The wall can't defend you. It's not built up. These people are trying to kill you. Our enemies are all around us. It's funny that these enemy all around us kind of reminds me of this time that Jesus prayed the same, had the same thing happen to him, and it was something that was referenced in the Psalm, Psalm 22. He says, um, Jesus says it, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. So they're surrounded. These people in their community are trying to get after them. Even Peter said that to Jesus in his community. Jesus, you can't be saying these things that you're going to go to the cross and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Willing to look at the opposition inside and outside the community. So these people inside the community maybe have had great... uh, intentions, but it's something for us to take note. Um, When we have great intentions, are we plotting a a plan to help that's actually helping? And we know that it's actually helping because we're getting our ideas from scripture. Or are we devising our own plans to fix things and we're actually creating more of an opposition to the people who are trying to do God's mission? So we have to be informed of what the word says and we can't just make up our own ideas of how things should go. So they pray, it's dangerous, we have opposition outside, we have opposition inside. And then Nehemiah does something really cool. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, so there's holes, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people. This is an excerpt, I would have imagined this to have been more of a longer sermon but he gives this like Braveheart speech. It's Father's Day, I have to bring up Braveheart. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your home, and they can never take our freedom. You can hear the passion he's got in this. And what's cool, he had just prayed scripture and now what's he doing? He's encouraging the scripture. Well, what, well, what is he encouraging with? I'm let me tell you. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 21 and 22. Same passage that says, the Lord says, I chose you, you're mine. Now these people are going into the promised land after coming away from Egypt and there's all these big nations that they're going to have to fight. And this is what God says to them. Now this would have been in the back of their mind and he quotes to it. When, when Nehemiah quotes to it, he says that uh, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. You shall not be in dread of them. That sounds familiar. Didn't Nehemiah just say, don't be afraid of them? You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in the midst, in your midst. He's with you, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. So they have it in the back of their mind, God's going to fight with us. 
They're recognizing that, um, what's cool is Nehemiah is recognizing that God's word not only is something we should pray back to the Lord, but also something we should use to encourage. Wielding the sword of the spirit very well. I love that he does this because it shows that he's responding with courage and acknowledging the Lord and God blesses it. So then this is what happens. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So the enemies, we frustrated their plan. They lost the element of surprise. We're good to go. Let's keep, keep working. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, bows, and coats of mail. Uh, he would have been with an entourage, uh, like a bunch of soldiers that came from Persia. So half of these guys are working on the wall. Half of them are standing as guards. And then he says this. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way. So the people who were carrying, supporting the builders, carrying rocks and rubble and all this kind of stuff. uh, Those people labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. So that's how they were loading. They were carrying a sword in one hand and working with the other. And then it says this about the builders, the people actually setting the stones. Uh, And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side so he could use both of his hands while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. This same uh, response, God's going to be there with us. He's going to fight for us. I can hear this huge sense of urgency. And he kind of leads more to it. But as I read these next verses, I want us to be thinking about this sense of urgency that they have. This isn't just something that we can lackadaisically do. So verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held spears from the break of dawn when the sun came up until the stars came out past sundown. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't go home and spend the night outside, but stay in Jerusalem that they may be that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. I don't know about you guys. I did uh, landscaping with my father-in-law for a little bit to help him out with his business and also because I got some cash. But when I worked all day in the sun, I did not want to sleep in those clothes. They were rank. Maybe some of you don't sweat, you glisten, and maybe some of you don't have, but... Uh, I can just, there were smells, there were feels, it's uncomfortable. They were willing to put up with the uncomfortability. I'll, here, when I was, so um, I became a paramedic in 2016, and I worked full-time a few years. Then I started doing part-time there, and then here, and more recently, I stopped doing that and just doing this. But um, we would, in the streets of Phoenix in the heat, there's a lot of people who walk around and just have the clothes on their back in all of summer and all the and for whatever reason they just hike from one place to the next and they're walking and walking in the heat of summer and we would pick them up from heat exhaustion and the smell was there i uh there's like this homeless feet smell and it's 
burns in your nose. And it's the real, this is a real thing that happened. They were sleeping in their clothes from working all day. It wasn't just that they, oh, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, so they slept in their clothes. They are dealing with very uncomfortable things. Granted, by the way, it's been an honor to serve the people on the streets of Phoenix in the past who I get to endure those smells and those hard things um, to care for the people who need it. Which I will say, being a paramedic, the worst thing is the smells, not the things you see. But that's me. Uh, so this took like 20, 52 days for them to build. 52 days. They're sleeping with their swords and their clothes. They faced opposition and they were willing to do what needed to be done. They fa- had this sense of urgency. So if we are in Christ, I can promise you you're going to face opposition. And so as we read this, what are some things we can pull away? What do we need to know when we, when we face opposition, not if? Well, the first thing is this. Just like Nehemiah and the, Israel, the Jews did, we need to know our identity. We need to know who we are. The Jews knew their identity, and then their identity determined their mission. They knew who they served. It made their mind to work. They understood this. They were not identified by who they were. They were identified by whose they were. They knew who they served. So we need to know our identity, and we need uh, to let that determine our mission. Number two, we need to know the appropriate sense of urgency. I talked a little bit about how I used to be a uh, paramedic full-time, and now I just have my certs, but I don't do it. Um, There's two ways that you can drive your AMBO. Code 2 or Code 3. I don't know why it's Code 2 and 3 because I don't know what one is. But there's Code 2 and there's Code 3. And Code 2 is that you drive regular uh, traffic, no lights, no sirens. Code 3 is both lights and sirens. Woo, woo. And if ever I was in the back and somebody started tanking, I would say, hey, light it up. And then, But here's the thing. If you look at the numbers, uh, most of the EMS workers who get seriously injured or die or not on a site where somebody pulls out a gun, it's when you're driving code three. So I'm putting my life in danger, I'm putting my partner's life in danger, I'm putting the patient's life in danger. I have to know how urgent is this call that I'm willing to put us in danger and endure the danger so that we can save this person. Risk much to save much. So we have to know the appropriate sense of urgency of God's mission. They didn't stop to launch an attack on their enemies. They worked and remained ready to defend it. They slept in their clothes. Like I said, those would be rank. I'm sure Frank would want to work dank in there somewhere, but <laughs> I'd say rank. Uh, but we must know the appropriate sense of urgency. So we, we need to know our identity. We need to know the appropriate sense of urgency. And we need to know how God works. We need to know how God works. So we have these expectations of how we see God move. There's this guy who, you know, falls off of his boat. His boat sinks, and he's in the lake. He doesn't swim very well, but he can tread okay. And he's just praying, God, save me. So a boat drives up. Hey, guy, do you need, need us to take you ride into shore? No, no, God's going to save me. He says, okay, drives off. Guy's treading water. Another boat comes. Hey, bud, do you need us to take you into shore? Nope. God's going to save me. He's praying, God, please save me already. I'm, t- I'm getting so exhausted. Another boat comes. Hey, buddy, would you, 
would you like us to give you a ride? I see that you're struggling in there. Would you like us to give you a ride in the shore? No, man, God's going to get me. Okay. So he dies. And he meets God. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God's like, I sent you three boats. (laughs) God works supernaturally using natural things. We have to know how God works. We often have this expectation of God for God to work through this miracle that just doesn't make sense. And he does do that. But often God uses natural things to do supernatural things. So we have to know um, how God works. And what's interesting is that they prayed and they acted, trusting God to work through them. Reminds me of Psalm 127. If uh, the Lord doesn't raise the house, in vain its builders strive. There are still builders to labor and build that house. But God blesses their work and builds the house. It's not that people just sit, the builders just sit there and pray. They actually get to work as well. That's just how God works. And God blessed that. He used their action to frustrate their enemies. Faith should be expressed through prayer and action. Prayer is half of the equation. When we ask God for things, we need to also be asking what things could God use us for. When we ask God for things, we should also be asking what God can, what things God can use us for. Are we willing to be the hands and feet that God is going to actually use to do things? He's going to supernaturally use natural means, very average, natural things. If you're like me, you recognize even the best of things that we do is but sin. Uh, Have you ever heard the saying, my faith is dry? I just, you know, faith just seems really dry right now. I'm in a dry season. I know I've been in that. Or, you know, I just don't love her anymore. He just doesn't love me. We just don't, we fell out of love. You ever heard that actions or that affections follow your actions? Something I love, this passage, it's in James 2. It has a little bit to say regarding faith and how it plays out. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Cannot faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled. I'm loving them. I'm telling them, you know, go in peace, be warmed and filled. We say this, but without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So using scripture's terminology, if faith is dead when we're not expressing it through action, then let's resurrect our faith by doing things that are good works, loving good works, Hebrews 10, 24. Some of you might know this, some of you might not. There's this huge body of water next to Jerusalem, and it's called the Dead Sea, which is a really cool, like, eerie term. But it's just called Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. It's so salty that nothing can live in it. In fact, it's so salty, I've heard people say that when you jump, they will take boats out and let you jump in. And if you jump in, they say, put your arms out. You're not allowed to touch your eyes because you just rub the salt into your eyes. And, but it's so salty that you'll jump in and just float at the top. But it's not a dead sea because water doesn't flow into it. It's a dead sea because there's no water flowing out of it. It's so low in altitude that all this sediment, all of this salt, all of this chlorine, all the things, 
come in and just sit in the bottom. And it has no place to go and be brought out. So the same is with faith. Faith without works is dead. So let's resurrect it. God works through expressing faith, not just having faith. But if you have it, you'll express it. I was talking with Ben, a good friend of mine. I'm sure many of you know him. He quoted somebody, so I'm going to quote him. Daily decisions create canyons. Small little daily decisions create canyons. You can be, Larry Osborne put it this way, you can be an avalanche or you can be an iceberg. An avalanche creates a lot of devastation. In a couple years, you'll never know it happened. But an iceberg slowly moves. You won't even notice it, but over time, it creates canyons that you'll see forever. Do we want to be avalanche or an iceberg? Which one is going to be more faithful over a long period of time? If we make small faithful decisions, we will practice faithfulness and then make big faithful decisions. Daily decisions create canyons. But it goes the other way too. If we make small unfaithful decisions, we'll be practicing unfaithfulness and then we'll make big unfaithful decisions. God wants to use us and we should want to be used by him. He works supernaturally using natural things. So let's pray and get to work. The last thing we need to know when we face opposition is we have to know our weapons. Nehemiah used the sword of the spirit. We have to go and fight the right battle with the right weapons. Nehemiah prayed the word. He encouraged with the word. And he held fast to who it said he was. He held fast to those promises. It makes me think of Ephesians 6. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. So we don't want to show up to a gunfight with a knife. We think our enemies are flesh and blood, but our enemies are not. There are evil spiritual powers that are working against God's church. It makes me think of the weaponry we need from Ephesians 6. We need the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the chestplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and feet ready and quick with the gospel. These are our weapons that we need to know how to wield them well. So Israel returns back to being God's covenant people, his treasured possession. That's Nehemiah. We as Christians are called to be God's treasured and holy possession. God wants you to be his treasured and holy possession. It used to be lineage and land that determined if you were God's holy people. But now it's faith. And it's not faith in some higher power, it's faith in Jesus. Galatians 2, Paul says it this way, I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. So if it is Christ who lives in us and no longer us, we must decrease, he must increase. If this is the way that this interaction works for us to be in God's holy people, then it demands of us to die to ourselves and not live our own desires, but genuinely live the life Jesus would have us live. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if this is your identity, you will face opposition. So let me talk about the mission that we're called to a little bit. I'm going to read out of Matthew 28. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It's going to be Matthew 28. I'm going to start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our mission is to obey Jesus' teachings and teach others to obey them. Well, Jesus' teachings are right here. We have to know them. But not only do we have to know them, we have to consider how we might help others grow in these teachings as well. Not just to know them, but to obey them, to observe them. And even when it's dangerous or hard, we're called to this mission. But what's really cool about our Savior is that he never asks us to do something he's not willing to do himself. He takes his own medicine. I guarantee you it was hard for him to go to the cross. And he didn't just go to the cross willy-nilly. It was hard. It was so dangerous it cost him that life. But then he does that so that we might be able to, a Gentile like me, through faith, be God's holy people, a treasured possession. So if that's you and you are in this family, I'm excited we're about to take communion and, and renew that covenant, take time to... Uh, confess those sins, be before the Lord, and be reminded of this sacred moment as we take the body which Jesus broke for us and the blood that he spilled for us, that we might be um, reminded and remember these things. I'm going to give a little bit of direction before I pray, but I also want to say if you're somebody who's not in that family and, and God's putting it on your heart that he wants you into this family, if this is going to be the first time that you take this uh, communion with us is what we call it, and if you're not a believer, I would say don't come up and take it because we don't want you to betray your confidence. It's proclaiming that you are with Christ. But if you want to be in, God is welcoming you and inviting you and wants you, and that's why he went to the cross. Uh, some directions before we jump in. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into communion. But you'll notice that these tables are up in front now. They were in the back, and you grab them and go to your seat. Well, now we are intentional. What we used to do is we would stand up row by row, um, and when the next row had gone, then the, the row behind them would go. And it's kind of like as a community, not only as an individual, but as a community, we're identifying with Christ. There's purpose in why we get up and make a movement together. And so for everyone who's in Christ, I'm going to call you up. To, we're going to do communion. Uh, but let me pray. And then uh, we can take that time and at your own time, take the bread and the juice. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this bit of your word specifically. I thank you for your whole word. Lord, I pray that you might be moving in our hearts and in our minds to help us understand um, your revealed word, um, your mission for us, and that we might know the appropriate sense of urgency, that we would know our weapons and be able to wield them well, that we might be able to um, genuinely die to ourselves and live for you, Lord. Uh, and Lord, for a lot of us, as we've been pushing towards that, I pray you would continue to work in our hearts as we're aiming towards that and help us get better and better. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. are saved to find their way at the sound 
my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands, his feet my sins 
Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in joy. Praise the name. Before I read this scripture, um, I'm told middle schoolers should join us at 1 o'clock. There's an event for you all here. Uh, let me read from Romans 15, 5 through 6, as we make our way out into our weeks and our ministries. Chapter 15, verses 5 says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.